Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, even before the COVID-19 crisis, millions of millennials were finding new solace in an old celestial tradition, astrology. The one-time 70s fad is back as millennials are looking to the stars for answers on mobile apps, online, and in newspaper and magazine horoscopes. The Pew Research Center reports a third of Americans aged 18 to 29 regularly follow the planet's movements and positions. How did astrology, once considered merely light entertainment, become a cultural phenomenon for millennial Americans? Later in the show, everybody knew that something was wrong with some of Mimi and Don Galvin's sons. Turns out, six of the 12 children suffered from schizophrenia. Author Robert Kolker chronicles the dual stories of a family ravaged by schizophrenia and the evolution of scientific understanding about this devastating mental illness. Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, is our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely... Dr. Judy Safrier, adult and child psychiatrist, Harvard Medical School faculty member and local astrologer. She's also a certified member of the Organization for Professional Astrology. Hello, Dr. Safria. Hello, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you. Also with me, Dr. Stephen Novella, neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine, founder and president of the New England Skeptical Society, and host producer of the podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Hello, Dr. Novella. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you. And finally, but not the least person, the most important voice perhaps in this conversation, Morgan Hing, former associate studio designer for Boston-based ad agency Hill Holiday and astrology fanatic. Welcome, Morgan. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you, and I'm starting with you because you are the millennial voice uh, in this conversation. So first, how do you define astrology? Astrology is kind of just like the analysis of, you know, how the stars are aligned and how it affects us as people. Now, a lot of people, a lot of millennials, as I've said, this is for them a renewed interest. But you've actually been interested since you were 15. What interested you then? How did you start to follow it? Well, actually, it's kind of a funny story. Um, I was dating this girl and she was really interested in it and she kind of like opened my eyes to it and because of her interest and my interest in her I kind of you know became more interested in it and as the years went on I kind of followed it and then in the last couple years I actually befriended an astrologist um, and she's incredible and I just learned so much from her and deeper knowledge into it because before it was just kind of baseline of you know, the sun signs and how generally things are. But I found that she has taught me so much more deeper things on how to look into astrology. So would you say that is this something you check into every day or because you've just expressed that it's a little bit more thoughtful for you now? How do you integrate it, I guess, into your regular life? I definitely look into, um, I have the CoStar app. 
and I definitely check my co-star almost every day and it's actually a lot easier because they send you daily notifications so it kind of reminds me to check into it. I also follow my friend's astrology social media pages and she also has a newsletter every month so I read into those just because they're readily available. Okay, that's good. As you mentioned the CoStar app, there are people reaching out like you on all kinds of social media just to stay connected with astrology now. It's that, I think, is driving a lot more interest now. Here's a clip from Vanessa Sumaina. She's a YouTuber with over 150,000 subscribers who posts horoscope reading videos. Hello, my beautiful little Aries tribe, and welcome to your reading about 2020. So let's get right into it. I'm going to be doing this intuitively, as already mentioned, so just lean back and enjoy. First and foremost, we have intention. So to all my Aries out there, I want you to know that setting intentions is really going to be what makes 2020 a fabulous year for you. And again, that's a clip from Vanessa Sumaina. She's a YouTuber with over 150,000 subscribers. Dr. Zafria, that's not what you do, but um, I wanted to get you to weigh in on the availability of astrology for more people now, particularly millennials, and whether or not you think this particular time, and by that I mean this COVID-19 crisis time, is actually driving more interest. Well, I think that the interest preceded the COVID-19, but whenever there is sort of existential threat, people seek meaning, and astrology has a lot of explanatory power in terms of understanding events in our lives and on the planet um, in terms of the planetary cycles. So I could imagine that there is an increased interest since the pandemic, but things were in a very difficult place before the pandemic in terms of the state of the environment and the politics around the globe. And there was a lot of interest before the, the time of the virus. All right. So I'd love you to define astrology because you're a person who actually studies it. You are an astrologer. And you didn't start off sort of uh, like Morgan a bit, but this was not something that immediately appealed to you. And then uh, something changed and you saw its value. Would you talk about that? Well, that's not actually accurate. I grew up with a father who was very interested in astrology. And so I was always aware of it. But when there was a personal crisis in my own life, I consulted a professional astrologer myself for the first time. And I was so impressed with her insight about me and about everything that I went back to consult her multiple times to learn about the charts of different people in my lives and finally resolved that I wanted to learn to do this myself. And that's how I started to do this. It was about 12 years ago. So what was it about those readings that resonated with you that really connected? It helped me make sense of things. It helped provide a context. It was so remarkable to me that the astrologer could understand so much about my character and about what my life had been like, and she had never met me before. 
So it seemed clear to me that there was something about her knowledge that was remarkable. And it's something that I that I wanted to understand myself. So I just want to emphasize that you're not what some people would call a woo-woo person. I mean, you're a faculty member at Harvard Medical School. You're trained as a psychiatrist. You have to listen closely. You have to, you know, think deeply and assess many things about patients to help them heal. So I imagine you don't come to this in a way casually. I just want to make clear that this is not a casual enterprise for you. No, it's not casual at all. And in fact, you know, I... I'm constantly studying astrology. People who are interested in it and who become sort of fascinated by it, very often it it becomes something that they are endlessly seeking to learn more about. It's It's endlessly interesting and there are always new things to learn that are relevant and deepen um, your understanding of things. Okay. Dr. Stephen Novello, you are the founder of the New England Skeptical Society, so you're coming to astrology from that perspective. Would you define astrology from the perspective of a skeptic? Well, from a scientific point of view, it's a, you know, astrology is a pre-scientific, superstitious, you know, belief system. Different cultures develop different uh, fanciful ways of trying to make sense of a complex, you know, world, a complex universe that they didn't understand. And so they made correlations, you know, correlations with what happens on earth and what happens up in the heavens, up in the sky, which they, they didn't understand. There's, there's no reason to think that it has any basis in reality, you know, just like there's no reason to think that any of the ideas people had thousands of years ago before we understood anything about science are real. But, um, you know, some people would push back and say, but why couldn't it be since, you know, there is a lot that science can't explain. So for some things, we're in that arena where you're not quite sure how it happens or why it happens. Well, you have to do better than to just appeal to mystery, just to say, well, we don't know everything, so who knows? Anything could happen. In fact, we have a lot of good reasons to think that there's no possible way that astrology can work. There's nothing about the position of the stars as seen from Earth, right? The constellations aren't real. Those stars are not really next to each other. That's just how they happen to look from Earth. So that doesn't have any inherent meaning whatsoever. They're also extremely far away. There's no possible way that they could affect your life, an individual person, that they're somehow lock in at the moment of your birth and affect your personality or the course of your life. It's not that it's, there's some, we just don't know how it works. We have a really good idea that it can't possibly work. There is no way within the laws of physics or even just basic common sense that the position of the stars can have any influence on your personality or your life. We, We have far better scientific explanations for what, you know, forms the basis of human personality, for example. So your skepticism rests with people you describe as true believers more than people who may seek out astrology for fun, as you say. That, to you, from your skeptic's perspective, makes some sense because I was interested in your saying that people need to create a narrative or a story or want to about their lives, and in some way, astrology could be helpful in that way. 
Well, I'm not endorsing or advocating using astrology for that reason. That was more of just an explanation of why do people seek out something like astrology. I would recommend if you want a narrative to help guide your life, try philosophy, science, and reason. Those work a lot better than believing in magic and pseudoscience. Uh, so they don't confuse an explanation with a saying that it's a good idea. I do not think it's a good idea at all. I think it's extremely counterproductive to rely upon, you know, false magic uh, as a way of guiding your life or trying to understand yourself or to, to you know, what pathway you should chart through life. It's not, it's not a good constructive or effective narrative. It is completely based upon self-deception. It can be powerful, though. What I'm really interested in is how people can come to believe something which has zero basis in reality is a powerful you know, thing that tells them a lot of things that, that, are, that are, they are, are impressed with. But we know this, too. I mean, there's, we have a century of psychological research that tells us how people can deceive themselves into thinking just about anything through confirmation bias, for example. You know, you seek out patterns and correlations that confirm what you believe or what you want to believe. And that could, that could seem to provide powerful evidence for your belief system, even when the evidence isn't actually there. And the way we know the difference is when you do rigorous, controlled scientific studies, then there is no effect to astrology. So not only does astrology not work, when we look at it, scientifically, it doesn't work. The The most rigorous, best studies of astrology over the last hundred years all show that there's nothing there. Astrologers cannot predict anything. All right, I'm going to get Morgan and Dr. Sufria to weigh in on it. But first, let me say, I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Dr. Judy Sufria, psychiatrist and local astrologer, Dr. Stephen Novella of the New England Skeptical Society, you just heard him, and astrology fan Morgan Hing. And we're discussing why astrology is a popular cultural trend today, especially for millennials. So back to you, Morgan. Does it matter to you that uh, Dr. Novella is pretty skeptical about astrology and your use of it? You know, I feel like everyone is allowed to have their own opinions about things. That's their prerogative. Um, And I think it's healthy to have, you know, some skepticism about certain things. I feel like that's like natural and it kind of encourages, you know, conversation. But, you know, with my experience with astrology, I've just seen very concrete evidence of like how these insights are actually pretty accurate as they manifest in my life. And Dr. Judy Safria, I imagine that you're going to say it doesn't matter to you that Dr. Novella has some strong skeptical perspective about astrology and the work that you do. No, it really doesn't. I have had so many profound experiences myself with it being extraordinarily helpful in terms of helping me make sense of myself and my children and my patients and of events in the world. I mean, I, I probably as strongly have the belief as Dr. Novella does that it's a very profound and, and useful tool. So Dr. Safria, you know, as someone who's on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and The work that you do as a psychiatrist, as I mentioned before, has to have a sort of deep connection with your patients. And I wonder how that may overlap or translate or be even more connective tissue to you to astrology and how you are able to 
derive an analysis of what is happening with the positioning of the stars in your life because it requires taking of many things and then looking at a a more holistic view, I guess, is what I'm going to. Well, there's different kinds of astrology. There's something that's called mundane astrology, and that would be like looking at the cycles of the planets that affect events in the world. And then there's another kind of astrology that is more personal and psychological. And my training is one as, of one more valuable than the other, or are you just no? They're, me that different. they're, they're yeah. different. They're different. They're mm-hmm. different. Like it's like one can make sense of the events that have been going on since two thousand eight using the cycles of mundane astrology to make sense of things. Like there, like we are in a time now of a confluence of endings and beginnings of new cycles. We're coming to the end of a long a very long stretch of time and the beginning of a new time. And when it's a time like that, it's a time of chaos and tremendous change. But the other kind of astrology is like looking at the chart of yourself or looking at the chart of your children or of a friend or of somebody who comes to consult with you and seeing how they're psychology is reflected in the positions of the stars. And my training as a psychiatrist and actually a psychoanalyst is really useful in terms of kind of decoding and connecting things when I'm looking at a horoscope. So I wonder because, and this is to both you and Dr. Novella, I'll start with you, Dr. Sophia. I have heard doctors say many times that medicine is a scientific art, meaning that You can have all the factual information about a patient's personal history, let's say. You can have the factual information about the symptoms of whatever may be ailing them. But the art of it really is the interpretive piece. Mm -hmm. So I could stand back. I'm saying this to you, Dr. Sophia, for you to respond to and also Dr. Novella and say, well, are there not pieces of what is happening from the alignment of the stars and my life per se? that I could stand back and see a pattern in a way that requires interpretation. In other words, it's not strictly all the facts of the patient's history and all the facts of the symptoms, but there's something more at play there. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Like we all see things through our own lenses and I mean, a different, each astrologer would look at a chart and maybe focus on a different aspect of it, given their own character and their own experience and their own interests. So it is very much an interpretive art. So Dr. Novella, what about that doctor saying that medicine is an art? I mean, you're a neurologist and you have to put all the pieces together and then step back and make an interpretation of what you have there as facts in front of you. Why wouldn't astrology be somewhere in that same milieu? Well, there's no analogy at all because medicine is based upon science. We have to apply that to individual people, and that's where the art form comes in because people have different preferences, you know, and and different priorities, and everyone is a little bit different. You know, we're studying the general population and then trying to apply that to an individual, and there's a lot of variables that you have to take into consideration and and very rarely is any one variable definitive. So we you know we're we're operating with with imperfect information, but we are basing 
what we do, what we prescribe, what we, you know, how we make diagnoses on the best scientific information that we have at that time. And science-based medicine examines itself. We do research to try to get better. And it's progressive. If you look at what we're doing now versus what we were doing 10 years ago versus 100 years ago, it's constantly changing based upon new information. We're building more and more detailed, deeper and intricate models of how medicine works, how biology works, how, what causes diseases, etc. Whereas astrology is just chasing its tail, right? There's no progress there whatsoever. You're comparing it to say, you know, treating the four humors, you know, from 2000 years ago, they thought that they had some insight into health and disease based upon what they were doing. They had amazing confirmation, all those things that they, they were able to convince themselves of this, what we now know to be completely pseudoscientific, you know, way of approaching health and disease. It had no basis in reality, but that was a form of astrology based entirely on self-deception. You know, people are really good at seeing patterns. Uh, that again, we know this from a, a lot of neurological and psychological research. We have what we call hyperactive, you know, pattern recognition and agency detection. Um, but then we have to filter out the patterns that are real from all of the patterns that we think we see, but that aren't actually real, that aren't based in reality. And that's when you need hard scientific evidence, controlled evidence. And when you take any belief system, especially one that's based so largely on pattern recognition, and the moment you apply rigorous controlled observation, then the patterns go away. That's how you know it's not real. And that's what's been going on with astrology. Every time we do a, a rigorous study, there's no effect. There's no there there, whether you're, you're trying to match personalities with charts or, or whatever, there's, you know, astrologers can do no better than chance. They're convinced, they're convinced that they're doing great. But when you look at the actual data, they're doing, they're just randomly guessing. There's, they're not gaining any actual insight from whatever process they're going through. So astrologers have, have not been able to build anything in terms of the, you know, what, how it could possibly work. Uh, there's no basic science, you know, behind astrology. In fact, it runs contra contradictory to, to basically everything we know about science. Uh, and they haven't been able to build a, a casework of scientific research showing that there's any actual real phenomenon there. That's completely different than medicine, where we are slowly, you know, painfully in a very complicated way, building a mountain out of individual studies showing data. Uh, we don't have any of that data with astrology. All we have is just, you know, personal experiences, which we know are massively deceptive. We can't count on just our personal experiences because that's not the way human brains work. Human brains look for patterns and we, we find them everywhere, whether they're real or not. So how do you explain a renewed interest now for particularly among young people? I'm curious about that. I know you just said there's a look for patterns. So do you think this is a cyclical thing or or what is it? And dare I ask one other question, which is, and it's, this is not to be compared. I don't want anybody to think I'm comparing. But in a lot of ways, people's faith, their religious faith, one could say, is not necessarily factual. Do you know what I'm saying? But yet that's very powerful in their lives. So just wanting you to respond to that. 
Yeah, so I'm handling the religious thing first. I think if you want to say that astrology is a religious faith, that's fine. I think, in fact, that is exactly what it is. It's just an ancient religious faith. There is no science to it whatsoever. And that, again, just want to reinforce, because you made it seem like this is my opinion or my belief. This is not about my belief at all. This is about the scientific evidence. And this is pretty much the you know the consensus interpretation of the scientific community the scientific community does not accept the reality of astrology despite 100 years of research because it shows that it doesn't work and there's nothing real behind it uh, in terms of why there the renewed interest in it we so we see a, a couple of things historically one is that yeah most pseudosciences do go through a generational cycle. They'll peak for a generation, then, then when people get bored of it and they realize it doesn't really do much, and then it sort of f fades into the background. It never goes away entirely, but it gets less popular. Then it comes back again 20 years later or 30 years later, and we're seeing that. But there's also a lot of research and a lot of evidence showing that in societies where mainstream institutional religions, institutional belief systems are decreasing in popularity, that other you know, out of the mainstream belief systems rise to take their place. So as people are going to church less, they are consulting astrologers more. So there, there just seems to be that some basic need, uh, you know, some metaphysical need, you know, in human beings to look or reach beyond ourselves. And people will seek to fulfill that that apparent need in different ways. If they're not getting it through mainstream religion, they'll get it through New Age beliefs or, or other things like astrology. Morgan, I wonder how you would respond to Dr. Novello because you're the demographic we're talking about and it, it seems to be very comfortable for you. And again, I'm not comparing someone's religious faith with astrology, though Dr. Novello says it's quite similar. Does astrology help you find some meaning in your life? And so that part of it, would you agree to? That's a good question. I I definitely, I'm not sure if I would say it adds meaning to my life. The way that I approach astrology is that when I am feeling kind of, um, you know, in need of guidance, I look to like astrology to kind of confirm what's going on with me and then like how to, how to approach that. And I'm not sure if that adds meaning to my life as much as guidance. But I do, I do believe in like the cyclical kind of effect of everything. You know, it's kind of like bell bottoms. They come back every 20 years, it seems like, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. But for you, the cyclical part, was that part of it or not, do you think? I feel like it doesn't, it's not a part of it, but that's kind of a good, you know, reason why it seems like there's a huge surge right now. I feel like um, astrology has like consistently been a part of our lives. But um, right now it's mainstream. And so that's why it's at the forefront. So I was also curious because your profession is graphic design, which is quite creative. And I wondered if that part of you that is creative is more open to many possibilities, some that might not make sense to other people. Yeah, I would definitely consider myself a pretty open person, um, even though I do kind of have a technical and scientific way of thinking. Um, I'm, I grew up with like my mom who's a chemist and software developer and she kind of steered me in that way. However, she always kind of sprinkled this little kind of like greater sense, like a greater power um, kind of idea in my head of that we are controlled by something that we can't understand because it's greater than us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you feel some of that? 
Yeah, definitely. And I asked you earlier if it mattered to you that Dr. Novella had a very strong feeling about the science and what the science says about astrology. This is not his personal opinion, as he's made clear. But how do you feel about people who challenge your your acceptance of astrology and your use of astrology in your life? And does that happen? I mean, I, I don't really mind um, because it's something that works for me and it doesn't have to work for everybody. Um, and it doesn't really change how I feel about it. I mean, I, I hear a lot of people who, I mean, people don't actively tell me like astrology is false and like I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't exert energy into it. Um, but I do hear people talk about their own personal beliefs that they don't really think astrology is substantiated by facts and that they don't, they don't believe in it. Um, and I think that's fine. It doesn't really change how I feel about it. It doesn't make me feel bad about believing in it either. And does this particular time of crisis that we're in, this, you know, social distancing, the quarantining, the unknown feeling of, you know, everything outside of us being out of control make you feel closer to it? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because, you know, right now I'm I'm not working. I was laid off. Um, I, I can't really go outside. I usually like to um, do service and, you know, see how I can help other people. And right now I am confined to my room <laughs> because both my roommates were sick. And so I might be asymptomatic. So just to be careful, I'm not going outside. And so I kind of have feel like I've been stripped of like purpose in my life. And um, I really struggle like in the lack of like routine. I, I'm like a huge routine person. And so it's been really helpful to consult my astrologist friend and to read more into astrology right now because there is such a great feeling of like unknown and um, you know we're experiencing a, a nationwide or even international kind of like trauma and everything's really scary right now and we don't know when it's going to end or what things are going to look like so I feel I feel really um, comforted by reading into astrology. And Dr. Sophia, what one thing would you want people to take away from this conversation about astrology? Just uh, out of all that we've said today, and you know, people can make decisions, make up their mind about it as they will. But just curious about what you might say. Well, I would be, I would like it if people would get curious about it, and if they would look into it and maybe consult a professional astrologer and have their own experience with it, and have it have their minds be open to the idea that this is a way of understanding things that is very very helpful that they would also be able to benefit from the wisdom and the support that it provides Dr. Novella same question to you well, I think yeah, being open is a good idea, but you need to be open to all possibilities, including the possibility that astrology is just self-deception. I think there's a lot to learn 
about the human condition, about how we formulate our ideas and our beliefs, how we process information, how our memories function. There's a huge you know, social, psychological, neurological science behind how our brains function that provide a really good explanation for why people believe in astrology, despite the fact that the scientific evidence shows there's not, no reality there. So to me, that's what's really interesting, is just the human psychology behind how we could believe something that isn't based in reality. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Thank you all for joining me today. What an interesting conversation. I hope, Dr. Novella, you will not be offended if I check my horoscope later. <laughs> I appreciate everybody's uh, joining me. My guests have been Dr. Judy Safria, an adult and child psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. She's a faculty member there and a local astrologer. She is also a certified member of the Organization for Professional Astrology. Dr. Stephen Novella, a neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine is the founder and president of the New England Skeptical Society website and host producer of the podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And Morgan Hing, former associate studio designer for Boston-based ad agency Hill Holiday and astrology fan. Coming up, one by one, schizophrenia took over the minds of six of the Galvin family's dozen siblings. Why did some get the disease and not others? And how did this family's personal tragedy help shape the way scientists think about schizophrenia? Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, is Robert Kolker's deeply reported saga of a family, a disease, and a mother determined to keep her family together at all costs. It's our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra. About 3.2 million Americans have the brain disorder schizophrenia, including the Nobel Prize-winning mathematician John Nash. Here's a clip from the movie A Beautiful Mind, in which actor Russell Crowe portrays Nash as he suffers a psychotic breakdown in front of his psychiatrist. The prodigal roommate revealed... Who are you talking to? Tell me who you see. There's no one there, John. There's no one there. He's right there. He's right there. Stop. I don't know anything. Stop. I, I don't know anything. Unlike John Nash, about 40% of schizophrenics go undiagnosed. For a time, that was true for many of Mimi and Don Galvin's sons, six of 12 siblings, whose struggle is the subject of Robert Kolker's compelling narrative, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. Kolker embeds their shocking and poignant family story into the ongoing scientific quest to understand how schizophrenia works and how to treat its victims. Hidden Valley Road is author Robert Kolker's second book, and it's our May selection for bookmarked the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Robert Kolker joins me now from New York City. Welcome to Under the Radar, Robert. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I'm delighted. I want to say congratulations. I need to note that your book has made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. Thank you. And, uh, and no doubt helped by being a recent Oprah book club pick. 
that it was a game changer. It's true. In a lot of ways, it was obviously thrilling, but also really gratifying for the Galvin family who really put themselves on the line going public this way with their family story. So to hear that someone like, like Oprah was listening to them was really, really something else for them. So I have to say that uh, I signed you up for this conversation before she made her pick. So <laughs> I just want to just make that point. But it is true. This is a masterwork, Robert Kolker. I mean, it is just a complete story of what happens to a family struggling with mental illness and all of its members, whether they're sick or not. So first, how do you describe the book? I'd like to hear your description of it. Well, typically I say that it's a family saga and that it's also a medical mystery. So Mm. it it, it sort of follows two tracks at the same time. One, it's like reading any sort of fictional work about a big family through the generations like East of Eden or The Corrections, only it's nonfiction. And then the other side of it is that they have this illness, schizophrenia, which no one really understands even today, but people understood even less back then. And it plagued them to the point where they first were in denial and then wanted to cover it up because of the stigma. And so it's a way of looking at our our society in the mid-20th century and how we dealt with uh, mysterious illnesses like this. So now a friend introduced you to the two sisters in the family, not ill, which is how you came to know about the family. What was your immediate impression at that moment? And also, what did you know about schizophrenia at that moment? I knew very little about schizophrenia. In fact, I I had a lot of misconceived notions. I thought that the drugs that people were given for psychosis, for things like schizophrenia, that they were every bit as effective as the the drugs that are out there for depression or for bipolar illness. But what I later learned is that really they just sort of manage the symptoms and they don't really turn back the clock for anyone, which is a real tragedy. When I first talked to Margaret and Lindsay, the two sisters who are the youngest siblings in the family, I couldn't believe their story. So much tragedy, so much heartache all in one family. I really couldn't imagine it. They, they in particular, had experienced abuse at the hands of one brother. And then the brothers all were violent with one another. And then as the illness went undiagnosed and poorly treated for years, then the tragedies only compiled. There were health problems. There was a murder-suicide It just kept going and going and going. And to listen to them talk about it, they actually were energized because they were pleased to be able to go public to tell their story after decades of thinking about it. So I was the one who was depressed listening to it. They were actually happy talking about it. And they cheered me up eventually because they showed they had a reservoir of hope. They believed their family story might help others. And they wanted a nonfiction author like me working independently, following the reporting wherever it took me to research their history and kind of fill in the blanks, things that people in the family still weren't talking about, things that were only in medical records that were buried in hospital storage rooms. And their hope was that their family could have some semblance of a happy ending if their story could be told from everyone's point of view. And it should be noted that you had full access, I mean, to everything. You've mentioned the records and the conversations with them, but you really interacted with all the members of the family. This is critically important in putting together a story about 12 siblings and two parents that figure quite prominently in the in the family story. That's right. And there have been some wonderful memoirs of mental illness, and there have been some wonderful memoirs of people who have mental illness in their lives, people close to them. What I thought that this story would have to add 
is that it's it's like an omniscient narrative. It, it has everyone's point of view incorporated in some way or another. And that was a heavy lift and really the challenge of a career for me. But I thought it would be something different that could that where you would look at the mentally ill and mentally well siblings and see them all as people, not just as a diagnosis. So 1945 to 1960, the 12 children were born, and this takes place in Colorado. I thought it was interesting and sort of underscoring the tragedy of it or the secrecy about how the family for a long time kept this history to themselves is that they lived on Hidden Valley Road. I mean, that's the name of your book, but they lived on Hidden Valley Road. As much as so much of what is true seems fictional in the book, that piece also added to it. And I also thought about the fact that I've done many books about family secrets, but this one, The Family Secret, was really couched in the stigma and the concern by both the, well, the sick boys didn't really know, but certainly by the mother, Mimi Galvin, whom you spend quite a bit of time in the book trying to extricate, you know, what, what she was hoping to do, why she operated as she did with the boys, and mostly that she continued to fight for their health. Yes, I think in the readers might become away very critical of Mimi early in the book and then have a broader view of her and a lot more perspective later in the book, which really mirrors exactly what many of her children went through. Her children, the well ones, felt forsaken by her and neglected by her and were very angry with her for a very long time. And then toward the end of Mimi's life, they started to get a little more perspective and a little more context and see her with different eyes, which I think is relatable even if mental illness isn't in your family. We all judge our parents and then we rejudge them later with a different perspective. She was really fighting a stigma. She and her husband, Don, were making a lot of really terrible decisions, sweeping it under the rug. But from their point of view, it was the lesser of several evils. I mean, their other option would be to go public and then Don would lose his job. The family would lose its livelihood. The other siblings, their futures would be in jeopardy. So they chose instead to be optimistic and hope that the kids would grow out of it. And of course, that was a, a dreadful mistake, but, but I tried to show her rationale as she's making that decision. And at the same time, while she's trying to figure out what to do, I mean, it's, it's hard to think about what anybody would do in that scenario because the sick sons did not become ill all at once. It's sort of one after another, like this horrible domino situation. The science, such as it was, was going forward, sort of marching forward with theories that in many cases were unproven. I'd love you to read page 36. This is one of the theories that was out there about schizophrenic mothers and the double blind, something called the double blind. Sure. In 1956, Gregory Bateson, an anthropologist and the husband of Margaret Mead, collected the various alleged sins of the schizophrenogenic mother into a theory he called the double bind. The double bind, he explained, was a trap that certain mothers set for their children. A mother says, pull up your socks, but something about the way she says it projects the contradictory message, don't be so obedient. Now, even if the child obeys, the mother disapproves. The child feels helpless, frightened, frustrated, anxious, ensnared with no way out. According to the double bind theory, if children get caught in that trap often enough, they develop psychosis as a way of coping with it. Tormented by their mothers, they retreat into a world of their own. 
And he really sort of out of whole cloth. <laughs> I mean, this I need to emphasize that this wasn't necessarily based on anything that that could be traced back scientifically. A lot of tunnel vision in, in science, a lot of groupthink. And back then, the people like Gregory Bates and, and other people who were who were arguing that it was the parents who created mental illness in their children, they were seen as the good guys, as the ones who were viewing the patients as human beings. Because on the other side of the argument, there were the people who wanted to give these patients lobotomies and, and also the people who wanted to sterilize them or even euthanize them because they were eugenicists. So it was interesting to me how back then everybody was wrong on every side of the argument. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Robert Kolker, author of his new book, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. It's our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. We are excited to talk about it. Let's go on to talk about how the symptoms presented themselves, because one of the compelling things about how you told the story was just to feel, as I said, the sort of one after another after another. I'd love you to read page 71. This is Jimmy. He's not the the oldest son. That's Donald, who first showed symptoms. But he began to show symptoms. And I was left to think, as I'm sure many readers of the book were, my God, this this family has experienced the first son. It just had to feel like, I cannot believe this is happening. This just doesn't feel real. Yes, this passage takes place when Jim is already married and outside the house. He has a wife named Kathy, and his older brother Donald is already having problems, but his parents are keeping that quiet, and Jim's marriage to Kathy is not going well, so I'll read. There was another reason why Kathy wouldn't leave. She had started to notice that Jim seemed tormented by something that had nothing to do with her, something that made her feel almost sorry for him. He would hear voices. They're talking to me again, Jim would say, his voice tight with emotion. He'd describe them, people spying on him, people following him, people at work conspiring against him. Jim stopped sleeping. He spent his night standing over the stove, lighting a burner and turning it down and then off and then lighting it again. In these states, he would act impulsively and violently, not toward Kathy or toward their son, but toward himself. Once, walking in downtown Colorado Springs, Jim rammed his head into a brick wall. Another time... He dove into a lake, fully clothed. That's my guest, Robert Kolker, author of a new book, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. What I think you've done so well is to show the impact of illness on the siblings who were not ill. And that is something that I think often gets overlooked in the telling of a story about families who are struggling around illness of any kind, uh, physical or mental. But in this case, you've done that well. And there was young Margaret and Mary witnessing some of this behavior. Read for me, if you will, from page 90 so you get a sense of what it was for them as the youngest uh, in the family, the two sisters, everybody else are boys, and watching this behavior. One afternoon, Margaret, eight years old, came home from school to find Donald naked and shrieking. She looked around and saw that the house was completely empty. Her brother had carried every single piece of furniture out of the house and stashed them in the hills. Margaret remembered the look of distress on her mother's face as she told her to go lock herself inside the master bedroom, the only room in the house with a lock. She remembered finding five-year-old Mary already there, waiting for someone to keep her company. A few moments later, their mother joined them. 
Mimi said they had to stay put while they waited until the police came to take Donald away. That's Robert Kalka reading from his book, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. It's our May selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. One of the things that I think you really are able to explain in a way that all of us can grasp is that the disease, as scientists became to understand it, the disease of schizophrenia, is it's an, an umbrella, if you will, that there are many ways that it impacts. And in a family like the Galvins, where so many of the siblings became ill, there was a way for the scientists to see how it manifested itself differently in each of them and come to a conclusion that maybe we say schizophrenia and it means a collection of diseases. And I thought about this in this way. So you could say bread as a category, but then there are rolls, hot cross buns, loaves, you know, it's bagels, roti. It's bread, but it's all different stuff. And, and you have to use different ingredients and different tools to create the different manifestations of bread. And so in the same way, as you explain in the book, in this family, and scientists were able to see it clearly because they became part of some scientific research, was that this disease was manifesting itself differently. That's right. It's a, it, that's a great analogy. It's a tricky concept to get a hold of, but there are some diseases that we know what they are at a molecular level, like COVID-19, for instance. We know it's a virus and we've broken it down and looked at it. But then there are other diseases that, as you said, they're umbrella terms, they're catch-all terms, they're syndromes, they're a collection of symptoms that we've given a name to. And that's what schizophrenia always has been. And the definition slips and slides over the generations until someone could be diagnosed with schizophrenia in 1960, but if that same person in 1992 might have been diagnosed with something else. So it, it, it is uh, an elusive definition. And as a collection of symptoms, it may one case may have nothing in common with another case. The best analogy in the book is a scientist I talked to who talked about it as like fever. So centuries ago, if you had fever, fever was the disease and you would try and fight the fever. But, you know, as we all know now, sometimes fevers are caused by viruses, sometimes by infections. And, you know, there are a million different reasons why you might have a fever. That might be what schizophrenia is. It's merely a symptomatic reaction to any number of things. But now we're in the genetic era, and families like the Galvins can be looked at for their particular genetic irregularities, and hopefully that can shine a light on how the disease functions in various people's brains. And that is the hope that the Galvins present now that their case has been analyzed and cases of other families like them. One of the things that you raised, and one can see it from reading the the personal stories of each of the families, that's the advantage of having so much information about each of them and how they interacted with the disease or without, is that the six sons were in and out of mental institutions and had a lot of different kinds of medication. People were trying to figure out, clinicians were trying to figure out how to treat them. Your book seems also to raise questions about the double-edged sword that is medication. So it, it can be effective, it can be very effective, but maybe it also perpetuates or aggravates the mental illness over time, which was not something I had, had heard about before. There's been a lot documented about how the medication has been over-marketed or oversold over the years, that it's been promised as almost like taking insulin for diabetes but that in fact it really isn't like that at all. And there's a whole slice of, of uh, 
med- of mental health activists who are anti-medication entirely. They think that it's all about big pharma trying to sell products and not really about trying to help people. I would say that that antipsychotic medications in some cases are a miracle for for patients who are so unstable and so far gone that they can barely you know uh, function at all, and that it can be helpful. But it's certainly true that there are medical side effects, physical side effects, and that two of these brothers of the 10 died of what could be called neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is essentially a weakening of the heart and other organs that comes from years and years of taking these medicines. So everything has a price, and, and, uh, and these medicines, first of all, they don't cure the disease, and second of all, you could die from the medicine one day. And that, that's, a, that's certainly, certainly a sad fact that Galvin's faced, and that's a sad fact that thousands of people around the country are facing right now. So I don't want anybody to come away from this discussion thinking it's, you know, so much science at the expense of the storytelling around the family. It is not. It really feels almost like a novel. I mean, I had to many times keep reminding myself this is a true story. I mean, all the way to the end where you give us a hopeful ending I'm not going to share. People have to read it. It's just like mind-blowing all the way through about their stories and the pain that they, they went through. I wonder... As you amassed this massive amount of material and looked into all of these individual stories and balanced how you tell it, was there something that you came across that didn't quite fit but was surprising to you that you left out of the book? Well, one thing that's very much in the book but that I had to really be careful about the way I framed it is the sexual abuse that one brother, that Jim, perpetrates on the two sisters. Um, I needed to write about this honestly and also write at length about how the sisters dealt with this trauma in their lives and how the whole family reacted to it. But at the same time, I needed to make it clear that I wasn't suggesting that schizophrenia caused uh, Jim's pedophilia because there's absolutely no science to suggest that. I needed to portray them as two separate things. So that was that was very much on my mind as I went through all of this. I thought I actually thought you did a really good job in the way that you handled it. It was quite surprising to me, of course, and and then just trying to process it in the whole family story was was heavy. Right, and I didn't want I didn't want the takeaway from this book to be anything like that. I didn't want you know it to, the headline to be "New Book Says Schizophrenia Causes Sexual Abuse," which is just not the case. I mean, that is a lot for the sisters to allow you to tell because it's very much a part of their own growth and they're, they're dealing with it. And also the impact on being well. You know, I don't think you could say enough, and you did in the book very well, about the heaviness that they carried with them about not being sick. You know, everybody expected in that family because so many did get sick, just were sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then not to have it happen really in some ways messed up some of the some of the well people. Right. They're they're still today asking themselves why them and not me. You know, why am I okay and they're not okay? How uh, what what is there a reason for that? Is it beyond genetics is there a reason? Maybe maybe this is a mix of genetics and trauma and and I was able to move through my traumas and they weren't. They'll never stop asking that question. However, they also are very functional as I explained they were, you know, great on the phone for the very, from the very beginning. The best way to tell the story, I thought, would be as intimately as possible, like you're sitting with people you know. And the best way to do that would be to spend time with them. And so I spent a year talking to various family members on the phone and in person before even getting the book deal. 
because I wanted to be sure that I that that it was going to work. This was going to be a, a real swing for the bleachers, you know, like a, like a, a real epic multi generational book. And so I needed to make sure that people were ready to talk. And and after that year, I was very confident and and really hit the ground running as soon as I reached that point. Do you think that in this particular time where we're a little bit more open, we readers, we Americans and folks around the world about mental illness, there's still stigma, of course, but there's less, I believe, about blaming people who become mentally ill. Um, we're working our way through that. And so this book comes at a time where there, it feels to me there's a little bit more openness about thinking of mental illness more broadly. H- have you felt that in the response to the book? Yes, I would agree with that. I've, the book's only been out about two and a half weeks or two weeks, and I've already started to get emails from people who read it who are telling me their family stories, and they're, they're grateful that uh, one family has been able to share their experience to sort of mainstream this idea, this, this, this reality that exists for a lot of people out there. And that's been very gratifying. Also, um, it's a vulnerable time for us all. And so uh, any sort of story of a family facing adversity and coming out the other side might be a good reading for some people who, who are looking for a way to process their own adversities at the moment. Well, Robert Kulker, I always ask my authors, what do you want people to take away if, it, if, it's only, if there's any one big thing you'd like for them to, when they finish reading the book, come away with? My goal always with anything I write is that people will come away thinking this has been a story about people I I didn't know and a, a, and a sort of person or a world that I've never inhabited, but I found something to relate to in it. All right. Well, you gave us a lot of food for thought. It's beautifully written. It's so well researched and it stays with you. So congratulations to you on, on a wonderful job. Thank you so much. And thanks for talking with me. Oh, of course. Robert Kolker is the author of Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. It's our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Find us on the web and wherever you get your podcasts. This is the last show for our intern, Melissa Rosales, who joined the Under the Radar team a year ago and is a member of Emerson College's 2020 class. Congratulations, Melissa, and good luck. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>